Welcome in, everyone. Hey, everyone. This is Everything Sucks. Let's Fix It, episode 12. My name is Ben Mayer. My name is Anthony Buono. Today is August 7th, 2023. It's a great day. Amazing day. Yeah, because we're talking. And whenever we're talking, that's when important shit is being said. <laughs> Obviously. Obviously. So, current events? Current events. Let's get into it. Um, I think we should start with the Fitch uh, downgrading the U.S. credit rating. Yeah, I think we should. Go ahead. No, I got to give you credit, man. You said something about this a little while ago during the French um, debt dispute and how large financial institutions and credit agencies were threatening to reduce France's credit rating yeah. because of their um, inability to reduce their retirement benefits and adjust their debt to GDP ratio. I was like, dude, now that'll never happen in the United States. Well, I was wrong. <laughs> it literally just did. This is It's so funny. I texted Anthony about this the night, like immediately after as I was walking home from the last recording of the podcast <laughs> that we did. So this has happened, what, like a week ago now? Yeah. Um, but it seems really important. So what happened is Fitch, which is one of the big ratings agencies, downgraded U.S. government bonds from AAA rated to AA plus rating, which is the the smallest downgrade you can do. But it's still kind of a big deal because... For so long, the U.S. government bond has been viewed as the safest security that anyone could really hold on to, right? And now this means we're not quite sure that the U.S. will be able to pay back the debts that it's incurring by giving out these loans. Yeah. Um, What's killing me is the the metrics that they used, right? The main reason that they reduced the credit rating is because of the debt standoff that we just had. Mm -hmm. And... That got too close to comfort for this financial institution, which I don't blame them, right? They want, they're looking for institutions that they, you know, entrust with their high credit ratings to be worthy and willing to be nimble to pay down their debts. Mm -hmm. um, and the U.S. was not nimble, you know, we left it to the last minute. Yep. We were barely timely and you kind of reap what you sow. Yeah, and, and this is becoming a pattern, mm -hmm. right? If this was the first time, then it would have been fine. But this has been happening for at least a decade and a yeah. half. Yeah, I mean, the 2011 standoff fight is, you know, burned into political nerds' memories. Mm -hmm. And that you the U.S. also fa faced credit rating scares during that time. Yep. So it makes sense for it to happen again. But, um, I mean, it, the Biden administration was totally thrown off guard. Jan Janet Yellen kind of freaked out. Um, she calls it arbitrary. Mm -hmm. She's like, this is meaningless. Yeah. Well, she's like, why would they do it now when this debt ceiling standoff happened months months right. ago? Um, and that's why I feel like it's important that to talk about how it isn't just these debt ceiling standoffs that motivated Fitch to downgrade. It cited um, increasing polarization, making it harder for the U.S. to govern, which we talk about all the time. Yeah. I completely agree with. It talks about their inability to cut down on Medicare and Social Security spending, um, these the entitlement benefits, uh, which we also see even in the political rhetoric, like neither side is even really allowed no, to talk about. That's the third rail. If you touch that, you die. Yeah. You can't touch those things. Yeah. But the truth is they, they are apps, they're a massive burden to our system. Something needs to be changed in how we fund them. Mm -hmm. Um, otherwise they're not going to be sustainable. But what kills me is they should know that already. Like they should have it modeled in their financial models, like when social security and Medicare become problems, right? Sure. So they, that should already be baked into their analysis. So I, I take it, I'm frustrated that the January 6th 
everything with the election, you know, Trump fighting back against the election results, destabilizing, destabilizing our government is now having actual financial Pro- adding financial problems to our country, yeah, and we didn't even we didn't even mention that yet. But right. it was it was revealed kind of that in a different conversation that Fitch had. It wasn't in part what they released, but they mentioned that the January sixth events led to this, and I think that's one because it shows that our democracy might be less stable than we think it is, and two, it is another sign of the of our polarization and the fact that now we do have consistent persecution of political enemies against mm-hmm. each other. Yeah, and that that persecution makes it impossible to govern, right? Mm-hmm. When you go out on TV every week and you say that these people are the enemy and they're evil, how are you supposed to get into a room with them and then raise the debt ceiling? Yeah. How are you supposed to do that? How are you supposed to come together and talk about how to deal with Social Security sovereignty and Medicare sovereignty? How are you supposed to have those conversations when you're calling each other evil all the time and pedophiles? Yeah. You know, you can't. And it's funny because I do think Biden being at the helm is like the best person to to encourage yeah. that you're going to be able to work together with both sides. But the the Freedom Caucus, the far right during these debt ceiling standoffs was so vocal about how they were completely willing to let the U.S. default on its debt, right? So when that's happening and you already see that that wing of the Republican Party has more control, is really the dominant body of the party, yeah. then an agency should look at us and think, oh, they'll totally just die on this political hill. And that that dynamic is also, it's radicalized even since 2011, right? Mm-hmm. So during the 2011 fight, the Republicans and Democrats, yes, had a standoff for the debt limit, but no side was realistically saying we're going to default. Mm-hmm. That wasn't rhetoric coming out of the, uh, the Freedom Caucus at the time, really. Now, you had a really, you know, basically the entire Freedom Caucus saying, no, we're going to default. Like, yeah. We should default. We, we, we can't pay down our debts. We should default right now. Yeah. And like that change in rhetoric when you have that group of people in the governing majority now pushing for or suggesting default of course credit rated agencies or rating agencies are going to be like why would we trust this institution yeah um they're actively telling us not to trust them um what i don't want people to take from this or do what are you going to say do you have something to add on the political stuff okay so i'm going to switch to the social security medicare topic Mm. I don't want people to look at this downgrade, and I hope lawmakers don't look at this downgrade and say, we need to cut Social Security and we need to cut Medicare, because that's not the right mindset. What we need to do is balance their budget. We can balance their budget one of two ways. We can either decrease what we pay out, or we can increase what we take in. Mm -hmm. The way Social Security is currently taxed is everybody in your payroll pays an 8% uh, tax into the Social Security system. For your first $250,000. After $250,000, you don't pay any Social Security tax on any money above that. If we removed that cap of the $250,000, Social Security would be sovereign until 2070. That's wow. all we have to do. But raising taxes on people who make more than $250,000 a year, people aren't willing to bite that bullet. That's insane to me. Insane. Yeah, I I also am on the side of we we can cut some of our social security payments. You are. Yeah, because I think because we pay everyone, mm-hmm. including billionaire CEOs. Yeah. Like how many people who are over 65 
are worth more than $50 million. Those people don't need $70,000 a year in social security. Mm -hmm. And I'm not, I'm not sure how much it would save. I haven't looked into the data and this is kind of anecdotal because I just saw a billionaire on CNBC in a conversation with Elizabeth Warren suggesting this. And he was saying like, I get, I get three grand a month and my wife gets one grand a month. I think it was the CEO of Home Depot mm-hmm. um, from Social Security. I, I know it's the political third rail, but don't pay me that. Do you remember what, do you do you know what Warren said in response? I'm curious if you know. I saw it on TikTok and I'm okay. pretty sure the clip cut off. But I, I, I am against that um, for basically the only reason is I'm for universality in my politics. I want to feel, I want systems... Not to feel like they are being tested, mm. not to feel like you have to earn them, mm. but that they are like you're right as an American. Okay. Um, the same way as we'll talk about with healthcare, mm. everyone should have access to the government plan, even if you're a billionaire, because it's the government plan. A billionaire should be able to go to public school, even though he could pay to send his kid to private school. I want my tax dollars sending him to this school for the same reason. So, what this reminds me of is in Stiglitz, one of the last chapters, he was talking about having a public option yeah. for a lot of these things. And I feel like that's maybe a good middle ground to have here. It's not um, everyone has the public option, but maybe the people who opt out and instead, like for Social Security, someone who opts for a private plan. But what do you mean by opt? Like they still have to pay the Social Security tax even if they don't receive it? Or you're saying that they Ooh. don't have like... Because what do you mean by opt out in that sense? No one's just going to say, don't give me the money. Mm. I mean, well, it could be like if you sign up for a private plan, it means you're foregoing the public plan. But it, but if you're for, are you still paying the tax for the public plan? Perhaps. No, who would do that? Who would forego the, who would pay the taxes and then forego the benefit? I think a lot of people. Because if you're, because if you're, hmm, you're, you're just going to, you're going to choose the option that makes you more money. So th- the idea to me, it's like like a 401k or something else. It, it's either you can choose Social Security is going to be your income when you're retired and over 65, or you do a 401k private plan or something like it mm-hmm. to fund your life after that point. Okay. And well, a lot about- of times the 401k type of thing will be better income but what about when like you're in the middle class and you do like a 401k and social security combined right and then that's your retirement plan is your 401k say pays you out like half of what you can live off of social security makes up the other half right Mm -hmm. that's do you think that you should only have a 401k or social security and then by opting in or out or how does that yeah i would think so okay I'm definitely, I I understand the notion that we want to cut Social Security out for people at the top. And I could be swayed to that position as long as they're still paying the same amount of taxes. Sure. Because I would be afraid of saying, yeah, Bill Gates, you don't have to get Social Security. And we're also going to not have you pay the tax. Because the way that we currently think about Social Security is people like to think of it as a retirement plan, not as a welfare strategy yeah right people want to think of it as like oh this is my social security account right mm-hmm. but that's not really what it is it is a direct transition uh, tr- a direct direct transmission of wealth from me to the 65 year old person mm-hmm. and it only works because the people who will come after me will pay for me it's not like that money is sitting around waiting for me when i retire yeah right so keeping that mindset of like or trying to eliminate that mindset of 
this is something I paid into and it's mine. It needs to be something like this is something I'm paying into for the current generation of old people. Mm. And I don't want it to be that dynamic. So when that's what I'm saying, when a rich, rich person says, I don't want social security anymore, as long as they're still paying the taxes, I think I could be fine with that. Okay. Yeah, I, I would definitely want it that way. Yeah. Cause I, but yeah. I, I do I do see the argument of this is going to hurt national cohesion. Yeah. Like it's just going to be another sticking point to be like, why do I have to pay that tax if I'm not going to get a benefit from it? Yeah. I think like um, the and, – and right. And that's why the universality I think is important. And I, I like the universality of systems throughout all the different realms of government with school, with healthcare. Um, in a perfect world, I mean – public schools like in a perfect world donald trump would be sending his kids to the same school that my kids going to right mm -hmm. in a perfect world mm -hmm. so that type of stuff but that is the fitch downgrading our credit rating wild story um and uh i don't know if there's actually going to be any economic downturn to this like a, well i the one other thing that i would have brought up is that it, we're just gonna have to pay more on the debt right because like, our interest might go up exactly and already we pay about 17 percent of our expenditure every year on just paying off our debt um and i don't know as as liberals you've mentioned before toying with the idea of minting the trillion dollar coin and using mm -hmm. that to pay off our debt i'm somewhat more interested in it at this point i i think it's kind of foolish and undermines the position of liberals to say they don't care about the debt totally because 17 percent of our government's expenditure would be incredibly valuable to use somewhere else. Totally. Uh, so it, it is something that I think is important and you should pay attention to. And I am totally okay with a gimmicky solution like minting a trillion dollar coin. Uh, I know there are concerns that that'll cause rampant inflation. And I, I was just watching an interview with someone who was saying like, economists think that it will make people look at their money and say, oh, this doesn't mean anything because look at what they just did to pay off the debt. But I don't, I just don't think that's how people work. I also don't think people would even know that they printed the, minted the coin. Exactly. <laughs> they wouldn't even know. Yeah. Right. How, what percent of America would actually know that they minted a trillion dollar coin and then how many people would know what that means? Yeah. And then suggest that their money doesn't mean anything. So I don't really agree with that. I don't either. I do think that liberals need to tackle the debt. I think liberals have to they have to accept that the debt is a problem for mm -hmm. the perfect reason you just outlined. 17% going to interest? To interest? Think about the amazing social programs we could do Yeah, if that wasn't a part of our equation. 17% is almost $1 trillion. It's probably about $800 billion. That's the same as our defense budget. So like, you don't criticize how much we spend on defense and then not care at all about the debt just sucking so much out of our budget yeah now look i'll give credit to liberals where they earned it right the inflation reduction act raised taxes on corporations yes the inflation reduction act raised taxes on stock buybacks from corporations and yes. these are all amazing things yeah that i'm really happy about um and through that we might be able to see more revenues come in the deficit is shrinking under joe biden from the from the uh covid19 highs that mm -hmm. we saw um and we're pretty unique in that. I mean, the United Kingdom is still having a ballooning debt. The mm -hmm. GDP ratio, the United States is coming down. Yeah. Um, but we need to, I definitely think we need to get it down faster for sure. Yeah. Which which I, I think like just no one wants to touch the fact that we do have to implement more taxes. We have I, to. I mean, 
progressives are are of course fine yeah. fine floating it but even moderate democrats they don't really want to speak out on that much no and they won't they won't and it's a hard thing because i don't understand if you actually went out there and you sold this as <clears throat> we could save social security tomorrow all we have to do is raise taxes on people who make two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year or more i feel like that's a winning message yeah right i don't know any liberal who's making 300 grand a year and then would say, I'm not going to pay more taxes. Because if you phrase it as Social Security is going to go away unless mm-hmm. we raise your taxes by, you know, whatever percentage, 6 8%. But it's even less than that when you do the whole marginal thing. But like no wealthy liberal is going to be like, okay, Democratic Party has abandoned me. Maybe a couple, but not enough to swing votes, man. No. No. If Definitely. you're that wealthy and already voting liberal, you don't care. Yeah, no. I think if you if you are against raising taxes on people who are making two hundred fifty thousand dollars or more, I don't know if I can call you liberal. True. Right. Then yeah. you're not a liberal. No. You might be pro-abortion, but you're not liberal. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Right. Not economically. At least. Yeah. And that's oh god, what a nightmare. Okay. Um, let's talk about some more good things Biden's doing. Um, because <laughs> huge Biden guys. On huge show. Biden guys. It's actually so funny because uh, we. I was a Bernie guy in 2020. I was a Bernie guy then, and I'm a Bernie guy now. But damn, Biden's making it hard to hate him. Like, <laughs> no, I definitely don't hate him. I know. And yeah. that's what's so crazy to me because it's like I, I he's so unpopular in all these polls. And I don't understand how because I'm sitting either. here like reading what he's doing. I'm like, this is not terrible behavior of a president. No, I, I really think – I think progressives are – have been misled about his moderacy. Totally. Um. And it it really just goes to show how how very very few people dig to see what's actually so going true. on, right? Like everyone has some kind of media outlet that is filtering everything yes. through a certain lens to them. Absolutely. Okay. So now, why are we jerking Biden off here? Here's the reason: Biden administration is restoring a, a gutted labor law um, that was uh, from the 1930s, but Ronald Reagan just eviscerated it in the 80s. So what's mm. this law that we're talking about? It's the Davis-Bacon Act. This law was introduced in the 30s as part of the New Deal and during the Great Depression by FDR. And it was to set um, labor uh, wage floors um, across industries in certain areas to kind of have understanding of the prevailing wage. Almost think of it like a sector-wide minimum wage, right? Mm -hmm. But it was specifically for construction. And um, the change – so – it, it, during the 30s, it rapidly raised the construction worker salaries. It increased the power of unions because now unions were able to now easily organize. And overall, the middle class saw massive um, benefits to their salaries. Mm-hmm. Um, during the Reagan administration, they did some differences uh, that, cut, <laughs> that cut the Davis-Bacon Act uh, basically to nothing. Um, the big one was the definition of a prevailing wage. So prevailing wage used to be that around 50, uh, 30% of workers in an area were making at least this, and then that would be considered the prevailing wage. Uh, wage. Reagan raised that to 50%. Um, he limited uh, the importation of urban rates for projects in rural areas, keeping rural people um, from making more money. Yep. Unbelievable to think about that dynamic, right? Yeah. It's just so blatantly discriminatory. Like. I know. Yeah, and those are his voters. It's the rural base that voted for Reagan, and totally. now he's completely getting rid of their bargaining power. <laughs> yeah, he limited the use of wages paid on other uh, DB uh, Davis Bacon Act covered federal projects. Um, so 
that's like st- that's cooking the books. That's crazy. That's crazy. So so basically the the projects that had their wages already supported and lifted up by the act now were excluded. Yes. So so <laughs> it's just removing the data points that are positive. <laughs> yes. <laughs> It's it's like it reminds me of being in like chemistry class and being like <laughs> those numbers don't work. Yeah, it's it's yeah. like it's like when you're doing like a stats thing and you're trying to get a line of best fit and yeah. there's just no correlation at all <laughs> and you just take out the shit that doesn't. Which fit. are those outliers? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and then the la- the, another thing you did expanded the potential use of unskilled helpers on federal construction. Uh, so the unskilled helpers weren't covered by the prevailing wages. So you expanded the use of them on federal projects. Yeah. Oh, they weren't covered by them, but of course their wages would still contribute. To whatever oh. the the wages the prevailing wages oh, were. Oh, of course, yeah, of course, right? Uh, unbelievable. And then he eliminated the weekly payroll report so that the federal government couldn't keep track of what the prevailing wages were. That luckily got shot down in court because that was so blatantly bullshit. <laughs> okay, that even the Supreme Court knew. Yeah, that or even the court system even knew the that the Rehnquist Court, the Rehnquist Court. So, okay, so who is against this? Well, the Associated Builders and Contractors, ABC, uh, a trade group that fights unionization, uh, will probably file suit as soon as this week. Mm-hmm. Um, the Department of Labor could be forced to defend the ruling for years, but it will still be in effect while they're defending it. This fight might go on for 10 years in the court system. Um, but this is one of those things where this is where the battle needs to happen. Inside the Department of Labor, we need to have allies of the labor movement who are going to be willing to push this. Yeah. So Biden is fighting to restore that 30% rule. He's fighting to restore that urban versus rural divide. He's fighting to get rid of that unskilled labor part. And, you know, that will help specifically people in the South mm. and the Southwest. Those those people who are currently under really hard working conditions with the heat waves we've been talking about. Mm-hmm currently have way lower wages compared to their northeastern and northern counterparts. So this is directly helping them. Yeah. It's yeah. it's um I really I'm curious and I didn't go deep enough on this what the the legal intricacies of this look like. Mm-hmm. Because I would think that if Reagan as an executive order changed all of these rules on the act then Biden should very much be able to change them back. Yeah. Um, but I'm not sure that's exactly what happened. I didn't know if, I don't know if Reagan was able to get these changes made through Congress. So we will have to follow. No, we're going to have to. I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not going to know. But, you know, I think like Biden will eventually be successful on this. Mm. And it just depends. Uh, uh, the courts are political, guys. So it just depends on who is able to stack the federal courts more effectively, the Democrats or the Republicans over the next decade. Yeah. Uh, the courts are political. It is what it is. Yeah. Um, but now this plays into what we talk about all the time, semiconductors. So oh, semiconductor yes. production going on in the Southwest, um, these high-tech electronic uh, manufacturing hubs are seeing a massive boom in construction. And he's trying to get these this Davis-Bacon Act being applied to all those workers now. Mm-hmm. And we know that some of the working conditions there have been horrendous. Mm-hmm. Um, and people are already being underpaid there. Mm-hmm. And so this is uh, going to strengthen union possibilities in that Southwest. Are you worried at all that developers will back out? Back out? No. It will cost more. I mean, there's no doubt. There are unions who say that it doesn't actually cost more um, when you take into effect, like, um, 
since higher paying union jobs create a more active labor constituency, mm-hmm. there's a good cycle of people wanting to become construction laborers because now the pay is better. So you have a more easy supply of workers. Yeah. Um, so there's like an argument there. I don't know if I agree with that. I think definitely the cost of construction goes up. Yeah. I don't think that's necessarily the worst thing. I don't see them backing out. I, okay. I, I'm, I don't care if the costs go up. Yeah. I, I want the costs to go towards workers' yeah. wages. Um, I, yeah, I just do hope, I mean, this is always the balance we talk about, always. right? Development versus fair wages and good treatment of workers. Um, and this is the problem of the, the tension between capital and labor. Always. Uh, so I'm, th- this is, again, this is one of those things where it's going to be, it's going to be a wait and see, mm-hmm. but I am hopeful that these projects continue. I do think it, it still will be much more profitable for these these chip companies as well as any other um like housing developers to still have these projects go through especially in the sun belt right yep. where there's already booming populations and everyone wants to move there and we talked about last week there's massive construction going on yep. in the southwest that we see rents decreasing very fast because of the rapid construction going on there yeah um yeah, and what I just like to see is a president who's on the side of labor for once. Totally. Like, that's just such a departure from what we've had over the last 40 years. Yeah. And, you know, Joe Biden is the union guy. Yeah. And there's just no getting around it. He is. And it's just great to see. It's fantastic. You know what else is great to see? What Joe Biden is doing in the agricultural sector <laughs> through the Inflation Reduction Act subsidies. You tell him. Yeah. <laughs> Damn right. The the Biden dick riding continues, people. <laughs> um, so we got a headline from Politico. Farmers <clears throat> have bought into Biden's climate program. Mm. Um, what is Biden's climate program having to do with farmers? What's the what what is the connection here? Well, uh Biden officials have pumped three billion dollars um into uh subsidies for farmers for them to plant sequestration what is it called yeah se- carbon sequestration crops and these cr- sequestration sequestration yes really paragraph three sec- sequestration uh. <laughs> oh man i wish we cut that out sequestration what did i say <laughs> sequestration oh. and then you said it again and i'm like no <laughs> uh, no okay okay so can you say it again? Sequestration. Thanks. So the carbon sequestration, I can't say it. <laughs> you <Whatever>. have to. <laughs> okay, those plants. Yeah. <laughs> in the gonna, dirt. In the dirt, those things that you put in the ground, um, they are designed to suck carbon out of the atmosphere. Mm. And during off seasons, Biden wants to pay farmers to plant these crops um, and to suck carbon in from the atmosphere. And there are some estimates. What? Well, I just want to be, to be clear, this isn't the only thing that's being subsidized. This yeah. is an example of kind of some kind of agricultural R&D that is what is in general being rewarded and incentivized here with this $3 billion. Yes, yes, this is not all of it. But th- I think this is this is the good example because we always talk about carrot versus stick, yeah. right? That's your that's your big thing. You mm-hmm. always talk about carrot versus stick. Are we going to beat them into doing what we into them doing what we want or are we going to benefit them for going the right direction. And oh, during Biden's presidency, they chose the stick. During they, Obama's presidency. Yes. You said during Biden's presidency. Oh, my presidency. God. <laughs> okay. This is going to be great. This is going to be a funny one, guys. Yeah. So during Obama's presidency, um, he used cap-and-trade approach. And cap-and-trade approach limited um, what farmers could do. And then if they went over a certain thing, then 
they uh, were taxed and penalized for it. Mm -hmm. The farmers hated that and naturally punished Obama at the ballot box for it and were mad at him. It makes so much sense. Like just thinking on a human psychological level, we talked about the global food industry two weeks ago. And you talked about how these farmers are often some of the poorest poorest people around, right? And they're the ones growing our food. Like they are sustaining the population. So to to get the stick, even though you've been doing this thing that that is what allows people to live, of course you're going to get upset about that. Yeah. And to instead be rewarded and kind of led towards a more productive direction – Everyone's on board with it. They're kind of like they're they're buying in the farmers. They're yeah. saying, "We know that you're struggling, and this is going to be the new path forward, and you're going to be in on the green revolution." Yes, right. And so, what scientists are estimating—I uh, shouldn't say scientists—the USDA is estimating that it could be the equivalent of taking twenty twelve million cars off the road using these sequestration plants. There it is. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, what these things do? They plant them during the off season. Sucks in carbon. Then they harvest them all out, and then they plant in their corn crops or their soybeans or whatever they're actually farming. But there are issues from this. Stanford University Center of Food Security and the Environment, because, you know, we're big on the food security, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, They found that these cover crops, specifically when implemented poorly, can reduce overall crop productivity. Um, That reduction in crop growth can cause spillover emissions in other areas of the world where farmers would have to ramp up their own agricultural production. Mm -hmm. So that's an example of, you know, the soil being too overutilized throughout the year. Yeah. And that's causing the actual crop of the food we eat to make it weaker if we use these cover crops. So worries about sequestration, sequestration, um, whether it will actually cause more farming and more emissions around the world. I'm completely okay with this because this these are the gambles that we now have to take in the battle against climate change. Totally. Right? Things could go worse, but we need to incentivize the research and development. I think somewhere in the article, in this political article, um, a member from the Biden administration's agricultural department specifically says, this is basically going to be a big science experiment. Mm -hmm. We need more of those. We We need need more science experiments. Big science experiments because we need to figure out what the most effective ways to reduce our emissions in all of these different areas, including agriculture, is going to be. So I'm hugely on board with this. No, listen, we are now at the point of no return. We need to start figuring this out. Yeah. And the Biden administration is taking some more steps on climate change. I didn't put this in our list here, mm. but it's just I just remembered I read an article earlier today. I can't find it now. But we were talking last week about Operation Warp Speed with the vaccine. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about um, the fixing of I-95 in Pennsylvania. And we were talking about how when the government wants to do something, it does it. And we just need to organize the political will to get it done. Well, the Biden administration is doing its own Operation Warp Speed type thing for carbon removal from the atmosphere. As of a couple days ago, they are opening up a whole new realm of investment and portion of the government dedicated to try to remove carbon from the atmosphere. Really? Yes. And that's that. we are now at that point where we need to start not just transitioning our economy, but we need to undo the damage we've done. And we need cool. to start sucking in as much carbon as possible out of the atmosphere and the government needs to be a thousand percent involved 
Yeah, I, I've I have looked into carbon removal a little bit in recent months, and what I saw is that there's there's relatively very little funding. I thought it was only like a maybe a few hundred, like hundred million in the the budget, but mm-hmm. maybe I'm wrong. No, no, no. Um, they they they. I hope I can find it, but 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 basically, yeah. So there are technologies that are already out there um, that can remove carbon from our atmosphere i think the a project that i was reading about one of the biggest ones was removing 60 pounds over the course of a month or it might have been 60 tons over the course of a month which again was the equivalent of some hundred thousand cars on the road for that amount of time or something which really is not even a dent it, mm-hmm. is, it is it is barely a drop in the bucket but the way that you scale these things up is by pouring a ton of money into them, yeah. right? Economies of scale. So I'm on board with more funding for that as well. He needs to prove... He, I think he wants to prove that it's going to work on a small scale mm. and then up it. You know what I mean? Sure. He wants, to prove, he, wa- he wants to prove that it's possible and that companies will actually do it. Yeah. Right? They, that, that's, that's his game. It's also tough because this, this is one of those things that's going to have to be entirely government funded. They're going to be the only customer for these companies. And so if climate change continues to be a politicized issue and companies can't trust that funding is going to be consistent. They're not going to invest in that infrastructure. Exactly. I think uh, this, is when, this is when the socialist in me truly comes out. And it's like we need a department of the government, like a section of the EPA that is in the business of sucking carbon out of the atmosphere. And that's their job. Yeah. We need to hire how many people we need to hire. And then their job is to suck carbon out of the atmosphere. And they get paid good salaries, and then all they do all day is hire contractors and do this nonstop to suck carbon out of the atmosphere. Yeah. That needs to be a department of our government. I'm not opposed. What kills me is I never used to be for that because I didn't want to bake in the fact that we could keep using fossil fuels, mm. you know? Because I don't, I don't want yeah. us to think... It's almost like when you have like massive credit card debt and you have like three different credit cards um, and they're all at like 20% interest rates and then you consolidate all of that into like one personal loan of 10%. Sure. And you're like, oh, I consolidated my debt. My interest rate went down. I don't got to worry about my debt anymore. I don't want that to happen with carbon emission. Sure, I get that. But the problem is there's already too much carbon in the yeah. atmosphere. Yeah, like there's no, there's no going back. Like yeah. we need to... And, and like where we've set our goals for, which oftentimes are around 2050 to be carbon neutral or zero carbon, we're going to emit so much carbon until then. Like mm-hmm. we, even though we're trying to ramp down, yep. we're going, we're going to blow past 1.5 degrees warming, maybe get towards two degrees. So we need to... God forbid, 2.5. Yeah. We need to not only try to flatten that out, but try to bring it down if yes. we can. We have to bring it down if we can. Yeah. So yes, that's next. Um, Let's see. Next, let's talk about the July jobs report. Mm. So we got some pretty good news from the July job report numbers. Not gangbuster, not incredible news, just pretty standard news. Um, we we The United States added 187,000 jobs in the month of July, and the unemployment rate changed a little bit at 3.5%. Still a very good economy, very good growth. Um, we still see like kind of plateaued since January, we had a slight spike in May, but overall we've been huddling around that 200,000 a month job number for the last six months. Um, we had prime, we're, now we're looking at the age participation rate in the labor force. And this is some really great stuff. So between the ages of 24 to 54, 
we have 83% participation rate. This was this is better than our pre-COVID levels of our economy. So 84%, 83% of people between the ages of 23 and 54 are in the labor force. That's awesome to see. Yeah. That's a huge rebound from where we were. This is, again, one of the things that Stiglitz talked about. It's one of the most effective ways to boost your economy is just to get more people working. Yep, exactly. Exactly. And you more people working, um, that's amazing. You know what's even better than that? Their wages going up. Yeah. And what we saw here with comparison to the consumer price index of June, which was 3%, right? Um, we talked about that two shows ago. The July wage numbers are up 4.4% over last July, which means real wages are up 4.4% over last year. We are heavily outpacing inflation. Real wages are up. That's what you said. But the so but I'm I'm seeing average hourly earnings are up 4.4%. Does that mean real wages or wouldn't it be yes. that hourly increase minus whatever inflation was? Mm. Um, real wages are up for yes. sure because real wage, wage increases oh no I'm sorry you're right real, wa- real wages are up yes. 1.4% yeah and the average hourly earnings are up 4.4% but the real wages are up 1.3 yes okay. which which is huge, huge especially considering the political rhetoric that has been that we're in this high inflation environment and the economy is struggling and it's just blatantly false the data doesn't support it no and last month it was only up 0.1% or 0.2%, mm-hmm. right? Now we're up 1.3%. Thank you for correcting me on that. So that's awesome. That means like we're coming out of this inflationary spiral. And people always, people in the polls are saying that they don't approve of Biden on the economy. I think this was why. I think that this can explain a lot of it, actually. They haven't seen their real wages go up in a few years. Do you think so? I think so. I, I think so. I think this is going to, I think when this, if this trend continues and we have, cause this is a lagging indicator, you know what I mean? I suppose I, I, it's hard for me to draw from like this really general high level, big picture look at the economy to think of individuals like, like thinking that, that their own wages mm-hmm. and purchasing power is tied to something that Biden is doing. Like, I'm is thinking, that true though? Because every time the price, the gas, the gas changes at the pump, everyone blames it on Biden. When eggs go up, they blame it on Biden. So I think fair. I think people might give the president more. But those those are, I think. Okay, you're right. I I think prices are more likely to be attributed to the president than wages mm. just because when i when i think of wages like it's such a employer employee relationship yeah it's such an individual thing it's like like if i am able to negotiate a raise i don't feel like that was like biden got me to do it right right i guess i guess it is almost like one of these things where if if you're experiencing something positive you're not going to attribute it to someone else if i get fired because my company told me like we have to cut back the money just isn't there like the economy's hurting yeah then I'm going to blame someone else, mm-hmm. right? But if it's but if it's I got a raise or I switched to a different job and I got a raise there, it's hard for me to think that people actually are going to be like. No, listen, that makes sense. I do think like I I I want to see this. I want to see the numbers play out. I agree. I want to find out if this is going to be a lagging indicator or not. If it's not, this is a lot about our country, right? If 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 real wages being up don't make a president approved of on the economy what can make a president approved on in the economy right 
So that that will that will be a difficult challenge. Yeah, uh, yeah, and I I mean I'm I'm skeptical. No, I'm I know. Cynical. I'm cynical too. Because man, I, man you make me cynical. <laughs> well, it's it's the I'll just refer to what I said earlier about how people are getting all of their information through a tailored lens that isn't changing in any way. Mm-hmm. People who think that Biden's been bad are probably just gonna always going to think Biden's think bad. He's bad. So then let's break down into where these jobs were created, what sectors. Yeah, this is exciting. This is exciting. So we see education and health, 100,000 jobs, naturally. That's always one of our biggest things. Health is health and education, always one of our biggest always. sectors of growth. Health especially. Yeah. Okay. Then we have construction, huge. Yes. 19,000 more construction jobs. Hey, maybe that's why the David Bacon Act is coming out from retirement. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's like it's all, it's like they think of this stuff. <laughs> um, leisure and hospitality, 17,000. Government jobs, 15,000. Still seeing government job growth. Retail job, 8,500. Manufacturing, minus 2,000. Interesting. We talked about this last time a jobs report came out too. Same stuff. Yeah. I think last month it was negative 2,000 too. Yeah. Once again, I think prob- what we probably mentioned is something like the CHIPS Act, right? Right. These fabs aren't Takes up. Time. Yeah. They're getting constructed. Yeah. Right. So, and then the next one, this one worries me. Business services, down 8,000. Now, business services are like your contractors, your consultants. Their employment is going down year over, uh, month over month. People suggest that that could be a slowdown indicator, not necessarily a recession indicator because the Federal Reserve has now projected we're not going to have a recession this year, but it could be a slowdown indicator because when companies are having problems or they're stressed, the first thing they do is fire the temporary guys who they don't have to pay severance to. Mm. And those are your contractors. So the business services going down could be an indicator for slowdown and slower job growth in the next month. I would probably put my money on job growth will be slower, not negative, but I do put my money on like 150, 160 okay. instead of the 187 we're at. Okay. Yes. So now digging even deeper into that cross tabs, baby. We're going deeper. Construction jobs. What's getting constructed? Well, residential construction jobs are down 5%. Interesting. But non-residential builder construction is up 10.5%. That right there is the CHIPS Act stuff going down. Mm. That's what that is. Okay. That is factory construction. That is huge. And we also see growth in uh, residential specialty, specialty trade contractors. Um, which I, So what that means to me is the residential construction is somewhat at a little bit of a wash. You know what I mean? We talked about how there's massive construction going on, but their employment, um, general residential construction is going down while specialty residen- residential construction is going up. Hmm. I'm not an expert on residential construction. I'm not going to pretend I am. But the fact that there are more residential specialty trade contractors than residential um, building construction workers, um, I imagine that the latter is more important to building housing. So, <laughs> okay. All right. Maybe. And then lastly, yeah. we see government job growth all the way through. Um, only place where there isn't is state government's um, excluding education which what i think that is is that i think that's the american rescue plan running out of steam wait i'm saying it is it's state government education which is the biggest thing that's down right oh you are right sorry thank you thank you yeah yeah excluding education is still 8.7 percent so that state government education is down 19.7 percent and it's all seasonally adjusted so that's not just because some are let out yeah 19.7 percent seems like a lot 
It's just right. 19.7% uh, growth over last month. Oh. Uh, yeah. Okay. So the growth rate is down 19.7%. Still going up. I see. Okay. But de- or, yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay. So that is the July jobs report. The July CPR report should be coming out. So next show will be that. Yeah. Good stuff. Cool. Now let's get into some international politics. Mm. Um, uh, we have some news on Niger. Um, last week we talked about a coup that happened in Niger, um, disposed the democratically elected government, and Nigeria threatened to invade if the leader with the democratically elected leader was not uh, restored back to power yesterday. Well, yesterday passed, obviously, and they did not invade. The Senate of Nigeria um, voted to not give the president the permission to invade. So the Senate is not on board with invading. Yeah, and I, I need to give you credit here because last week on our episode, you specifically mentioned how you think this would be a massive loss of legitimacy for the West African bloc if they didn't invade. And you further predicted that they wouldn't invade and that they would lose all their legitimacy, which and I think they did. is exactly what happened. They lost all their legitimacy. Yeah. Um, we recently had a TikTok blow up <laughs> uh, where we were talking about this whole thing. And I don't understand why, but it was very popular in Africa. And yeah. they all accused us of saying that we wanted war in Africa. And yeah. if you watched it, it's not what we wanted. No. Not at all. It was so funny. No. Um, so now what's the update here? Obviously, Nigeria has not invaded, but Nigeria has taken some pretty intense steps. Nigeria has cut off uh, Niger's electricity, um, and Nigeria is responsible of 70% of Niger's power. 70%. So there are rolling blackouts across Niger right now. That's crippling. Countries can't survive without power no in today's day it's totally un- unsustainable and no. the Ni- uh, niger has called up um the people around the country to rally behind the flag and to start taking up arms and to get to the capital and like organize for their defense and everything oh. so they're they're mobilizing i just don't think nigeria is going to do it but niger is also doing things in response niger has shut down its airspace it has threatened to shoot anything down that flies into their airspace mm-hmm. um what is new over this week is the United States is getting involved. The United States is in contact with the military junta in Niger and is saying, look, we will restore your military aid if you restore constitutional order and we will help you kick out Boko Haram. Boko Haram is an Islamist militant group in the northern part of Nigeria and the southern part of Niger. causes massive destabilization problems in both countries. And the military junta doesn't want them around either. This is an opportunity for Boko Haram, Boko Haram to really repel on both of those countries. Mm. So the United States has some leverage. Okay. Um, hmm. Yeah. Interesting. So, yeah. Um, tin, uh, some international commentary. Um, Tinubu, uh, the president of Nigeria, was, uh, was uh, said by foreign advisors uh, and foreign analysts saying that he miscalculated the entire situation, that Tinubu rushed to give an ultimatum to the military leaders in Niger without talking to the leaders of Mali, Guinea, and Burkina Faso. As we now know, Burkina Faso, Mali, and Guinea all supported Niger and said that they would come to Niger's defense. Tinubu had no idea that that was going to happen. Okay. And they Tinubu were not being the, the leader of Nigeria. Yes, Tinubu yes. is the leader of Nigeria. Okay. And he did not know that they were all going to come to Niger's defense. Mm. So it totally undercut his entire position. Um. Not only that, Algeria and Chad both share borders with Niger, 
um, condemned Nigeria's idea, saying that that would risk escalating this border conflict into an Africa-wide conflict. Mm -hmm. And Algeria even said that that would be a direct threat on their country, saying that they would help Niger against Nigeria as well. So Nigeria just totally screwed themselves. Yeah. Totally embarrassing. And I'm glad that there's no war for everyone watching. Yeah. They were calling the CIA plants. <laughs> Dude, a CIA plant would have more than 250 YouTube subs, okay? Yeah, they know what they're doing much more than we do. Yeah. God. Uh, do you have any comments on Niger and everything? I mean, I, I'm with you that I'm glad there was no war. I'm with you that I think it it is massively embarrassing on the international stage for Nigeria. Um, I, I see where they're coming from to try to wield totally. their power. But it also means that threats they make in the future now are just not going to hold any weight. Um, so I think this is something that, that a Western democratic bloc kind of will just have to let go. Yeah. And, you know, people say like, you want to fight for democracy in Ukraine. Why don't you want to fight for democracy in Niger? If I felt and if American analysts felt that there was a portion of the Niger population that wanted more than anything to take down this government, this military junta, and the military junta had low approval ratings, you know, and they were clamoring for America to come help them, then yeah, maybe we'd give them some guns and help them out. Mm -hmm. That's not what's happening. Yeah, I also think uh, an internal coup mm -hmm. is a much different situation than... Uh, an unprompted invasion by a foreign power. Yeah, totally different. Yeah. Totally different. But I saw comments on that, like, you want to fight for democracy in Ukraine, but not in Niger, why not? Well, that's why I don't think... I uh, Internal coup is not the same thing, and I don't see the desire to take down the junta yeah, as I think there was a desire to be Putin. We're, well, we're, we're happy to fight for democracy in a country, but we, we don't want an Afghanistan situation where we are t attempting to install a government that we like for years, but since no one wants it, as soon as we're gone, it just collapses. No, and we've learned better. We've learned. We're not going to be tricked by ideologues in these countries that want to form democratic republics, well-meaning ideologues, but ideologues nonetheless, and mm -hmm. are totally disconnected with the people. That's what we did in Afghanistan. We listened to Afghanistan democratic ideologues saying that they could make a democratic state out of it, and they couldn't. No. And we're not going to make that mistake again with Niger. We're not going to. We're not mm -hmm. going in. Clip that, and then maybe we'll see if we get any traction so people stop saying we're CIA shills. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. All right. Now let's talk about the not important stuff, but the funny stuff. The still interesting stuff, of I course. would say. Still interesting. Yeah. Let's start with the Trump indictment. Um, Talked about this last week. Yes. Trump got indicted again. Uh, but Again. <laughs> yeah, for the third time. But there have been some updates since because... After this third indictment, um, Trump instantly responded on Truth Social. Uh, and his the quote is, if you go after me, I'm coming after you. Of course, in classic all, all caps, uh, Trump. Exclamation point at the end. Yeah. Uh, it's so funny. Even though he had specifically been told, and I think he's been told at all of these indictments, like, you can't threaten anything. You can't reveal anything that's come up to you in discovery, right? Uh, so this is exactly what he did. And instantly, Jack Smith, the special counsel, requests a gag order to be placed on him so he couldn't can't talk or he can't reference the trial in public. Uh, I saw something that says that this is this is kind of Jack Smith knowing that Trump can't keep his mouth shut. Totally. 
Um, and so that's why he asks for this order. And also, if if they prove that Trump violated the conditions of his release, they can jail him until Which would the trial. Be insane. It seems kind of clear to me. Do you think they'll pursue it? Um, I don't think. I don't think they will, and I think they won't because I think that plays too well for his hand. I think that helps him. I think so too. If Trump goes to jail, I think his approval rating goes up. Yeah. Not just in the Republican Party, but nationally. Yeah. It, like until he gets convicted, don't put him in jail, please. Put him on house arrest, maybe. Yeah. Don't put him in jail until he's convicted. It feels too much like, okay, now you really are just doing political prosecution. Yeah. That's what it will feel like. It's not true. No. But that's what it feels like. So this is what Jack Smith said in regards to the 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 protective order or the gag order. Um, such a restriction is particularly important in this case because the defendant has previously issued public statements on social media regarding witnesses, judges, attorneys, and other associated with legal matters pending pending against him. If the defendant were to begin issuing public posts using details or, for example, grand jury transcripts obtained during discovery, it could have a harmful chilling effect on witnesses or adversely affect the fair administration of justice in this case. So... It would be used to, we don't want him um, going after witnesses. We don't want him getting the public to go after witnesses. Because a lot of what Trump does is stirs up his base to go out and send death threats to people. Mm-hmm. We don't want any of the grand jury's people to get leaked. Mm-hmm. And I don't put it past Trump to say that he wants to do that, right? I, I don't put it past him. I think he would release the names of people on the grand jury. Yeah. Um, he's already said some awful things about the judge and asked her to recuse herself. He said he called Jack Smith deranged already. Um, and in amazing, funny fashion, Trump's lawyer went around the Sunday shows. Um, and I'm a nerd who watches the Sunday shows every Sunday morning. <laughs> um, and he was getting interviewed by, Fo- uh, by, by MSNBC. I think he was on Fox. He was on State of the Nation. Um, he was on CBS. He was on all the shows. And he was saying, like, that he doesn't want the trial to be judged in D.C. because it's too much of a stacked jury against him. Okay, fine, whatever. D.C. voted for Biden 96 to 4. So D.C. is not a great place for Trump to get tried. Don't commit the crime in D.C. then. I don't know what you want to hear. But then he says that we should, we're requesting that it gets moved to West Virginia because it's a more diverse state. West Virginia is the second whitest state. Yeah, it is definitely not a more diverse state. And the fact that they want to do that shows how desperate they are. Mm. I think that's so desperate. Yeah. And it's embarrassing. Yeah. Under what area and for what reason would the trial be moved from D.C. to West Virginia unless you're just knowing you're guilty and you're trying to get away with it? Yeah, see, I guess it's embarrassing, but but no one – again, everyone's on a side. Yeah. Already, right? Like, well, what's the thing? It's like if a tree falls in the forest, no one's around to hear it, doesn't make a sound. It's kind of like that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. If, like if, if, if the Democrats are already act. like, you should already be embarrassed, then who cares if the Republicans are are already like, there's nothing you can possibly do to be embarrassed, then <laughs> no change. Yeah, who cares? Yeah. No, I totally get that. He's also asking for the judge to get re- to recuse herself. Yeah. Um, the judge has been fairly hard on January 6th um perpetrators in the past so there's no reason to think that she won't be hard on trump for this um but he's just trying to get her to recuse herself for of course i mean they're doing everything to delay to discredit delay. right yeah 
everything. So, so Trump Trump said that Trump has responded to this protective order, and he said that uh, he's not going through with it, and he's appealing. He says, in a trial about the First Amendment rights, because I guess this indictment is again about his first amendment well that's what he's saying and right. i don't think the indictment says that in the first in the first page of the indictment he says this is not about the first amendment yeah. like right away um in a trial about the first amendment rights the government seeks to restrict first amendment rights um well said buddy worse it does worse it it goes against it uh what does it say worse it does so against its its administration's primary political opponent during an blah 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 blah, blah. so it's just them being scared than being butthurt, mm-hmm. upset, and I'm just totally sick of it. And I can't wait for this trial to start. Hopefully it starts before the election. Yeah. But they're trying to push it until after, which I think would be a nightmare. Oh, yeah. No, if if he's president, then he won't get convicted. Right. They'll he, find there, there's too many legal loopholes that they can find there. Totally. And he's not even going to go to trial if he's a president. No. Like, the only way he stays out of jail, from my perspective, I'm not a lawyer. I don't know. But from what I do know, from reading the indictment and, you know, having my fucking eyes open, um, the uh, it, the only way he gets out of this is if he gets elected again. Yeah. And I just want to give a little more context to what laws are being used to charge him. Um, the laws were passed in 1870, and they were called the Enforcement Acts. And these were acts passed by uh, the government specifically designed to beef up the reconstruction of America post the Civil War mm-hmm. and in, and enforce the 14th Amendment and the 15th Amendment. A nickname for the Enforcement Acts is called the Ku Klux Klan Acts um, uh, because they were the Ku Klux Klan was out there tr- uh killing black people so that they wouldn't vote and stopping black people from voting. He's using the enforcement acts by saying Trump defrauded the United States and nullified the votes of millions of people. Um, and they're using the Ku Klux Klan Act to prosecute him. And I think that is just a perfect moment in our history. Poetic. Poetic. Yeah. Uh, hopefully our, uh, one of the, uh, the first president could get convicted that could get convicted. Uh, could be done so through the Ku Klux Klan Act. Just beautiful. <laughs> that would be wild. Beautiful. Beautiful. And now, a little bit of comedy for everybody. <laughs> this, is, this is purely for Anthony's yeah, this personal is just, pleasure. I, just, I, I, just, I think Ron DeSantis is the funniest guy in America. <laughs> I think he's so dumb. I think he's like uniquely as a bad politician. Actually, I don't know if he's a dumb guy, but I think he's a uniquely bad politician. And it's just amazing to see him in front of everyone. Well, I, I, the thing is, he just stepped out of his lane. Yeah. He had a lane that he was dominating and that he's, he's politically done very well in. And now he's stepped into one where there's just really no room for him. There's no room. And he's trying to squeeze his way in. And so let's start with that. Let's start with that, trying to squeeze his way in. So donors are pissed at him because he's not making any progress. He's like down to 13% in some national polls. DeSantis is so funny. So, (laughs) okay. So donors are really pissed at him because he has done so poorly in the national polls recently. He's 24 points down in Iowa. I saw some national polls saying he was only at 13% nationwide. He's doing so bad. Yeah. And his donors are pissed. One guy, um, Robert Biglow, the founder of Budget Suites of America and Biglow Aerospace. Um, told Reuters um, that he explained to Ron DeSantis that if the governor does not shift his agenda to target moderates, he's going to lose his support. 
This is so interesting because this is exactly what DeSantis was trying not to do. He was trying to out-Trump Trump. Trump. Yeah. The whole, his whole campaign has been to out-Trump Trump. Trump, And now his biggest donor is like, no one wants you to out-Trump Trump, Trump, you idiot. We want a moderate alternative to the crazy guy who's going to jail. My question is, why why did they ever expect that he would be that? I have no idea. Why would a donor ever pay something into DeSantis' campaign on that idea? I... And rich people are bailing money. I don't know. It's crazy. No, I don't know. I don't know. And he's and this donor has come out and said that um, he he'll lose if he keeps going down the path he's going on. He says I'm already too big a percentage. A lot of his donors are still on the fence. Oh God, it's so embarrassing. It's so embarrassing. Yeah. And then and then he goes on national TV this week, and he gets asked if Donald Trump won the election. And for the first time, he says, Donald Trump lost. Yeah. He says it. He says those words. He does kind of give some caveats. He says, still, there are millions of mail-in ballots and said the election wasn't the most secure in history. He said it wasn't a well-run or a good election. I don't know what that means. I don't know. Um, <laughs> he doesn't know what that he means. He doesn't know what that means. No, no. He's just he's just trying to stay in the political gray area. Right. He's just he's trying to stay in the gray zone. Yeah. He's just trying to make himself like appeal to everybody. Yeah. And when you try to appeal to everybody, you appeal to no one. That's exactly that's the story of Ron DeSantis right now. That is the story of Ron DeSantis. Um and then he weirdly, in his his in his desire to out Trump Trump, he then accuses Donald Trump's FBI. Like he says that it's Donald Trump's fault for the censoring of the Hunter Biden story. Like he blames Donald Trump that Hunter Biden got covered up by the FBI. Whether or not Hunter Biden got covered up by the FBI, I don't I don't really want to say that out there because I don't think that's accurate of a description of what happened. But like, again, he's blaming Trump for COVID lockdowns in this interview again. And it's like, well, the no one's listening to you. The Trump's FBI censored the Biden story is is remarkable to me because it just makes absolutely no sense that Trump would have any hand in censoring that. Like no one would, it's impossible to draw that logical line. Well, right. So then wouldn't that just prove that there is no connection between the executive branch and the FBI? Like, isn't that what that proves? Yeah. And then isn't that a good thing? Because then the Biden administration isn't weaponizing the FBI by the same logic. Exactly. Because the guy who currently runs the FBI was appointed by Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. So how is this, like, what's happening with these people? Their brains are rotting. The logical inconsistencies are really just piling up. No, it's just hilarious. And then the last thing with DeSantis is he was uh, signing up. He he agreed to debate Gavin Newsom, hosted by Sean Hannity. (laughs) Newsom has balls to... Go for that. Yeah. Because that's a stack. If there's ever a stack jury, mm-hmm. that's a stack jury. Mm-hmm. And he goes in there, and but they're having problems about the rules. And one of the rules they're having a problem with is about opening statements. So in, instead of opening remarks by each governor, Ron DeSantis wants to provide a video lasting no more than 120 seconds. Newsom team offers that they want opening statements no longer than four minutes. Why would DeSantis want it to do it in a video? I mean, you know. Right, because right? he's an awful public speaker yeah. who has no charisma, and he's going to need like 30 takes. Yeah, and, and no values. And that's <laughs> no that's what screams to me about DeSantis, right? DeSantis doesn't want to say anything that isn't prepared. Oh, yeah. He, he, is, he is entirely a constructed persona for the sake of gaining political uh, 
backing, political power. He's like a Lego minifigure that the Republican Party is just switching hats on. Yeah, yeah. He's kind of, he strikes me as the opposite of Vivek Ramaswamy. True. Who literally goes everywhere to just, true, like I believe, honestly speak what he believes. Yeah. DeSant- DeSantis is the complete opposite. No, Vivek Ramaswamy is speaking from the heart. Uh, Ron DeSantis is speaking from a checkbook. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> literally. Totally. Oh, it's too funny. So that's current events, guys. Um, next. What do we have in store? So I guess we should probably tell the audience we're 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 killing our book club segment. First of all, it, we we weren't enjoying it too much because I think we both kind of felt like we were more interested in learning more about the current events and in our deep dives. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was feeling like the chapters of the books were kind of a bit of a chore. And it was a lot to it was a lot of research to do the show. Yeah, to do the current events, to do the deep dive, and do the book club. And it's like. You know, we have full-time jobs on top of this. It's really hard to balance everything. Yeah. And I don't feel like we weren't getting a lot of value out of the books. Yeah, no. we learned a lot. And I'm sure everyone who listened learned a lot. But we even talked about with with both of the, the two books that we read, we learned a lot of historical context mm-hmm. to things, I think. But they didn't necessarily challenge or inform right. our own ideas. Yeah. Um, and so at a certain point, it's like, okay, yeah, we... It's it's nice to know what the actual hard evidence and the, the paths to get to all these places were, but it's still taking us to the exact same place, mm-hmm. right? We're not going anywhere different. It just felt like we were in like a little bit of an echo chamber with those books. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? On, on top of that, when we're doing the deep dives, we can really learn a lot about policy. When you read a book about progressive politics, you can only get 20 pages, maybe 10 pages on 10 to 20 pages on healthcare max. Mm-hmm. Well, now what we're going to talk about today, we're able to go so deep and learn so much because we have so much more time and we can focus on just one thing instead of the overall grand thing that is the American economy. We can just focus. Yeah. So what we're talking about is healthcare today. I, I We've both gone super deep. Yeah. We have a lot to talk about. If you're an American, you probably know that our healthcare system is super flawed um, and I kind of want to set the stage to this with a quote from Warren Buffett, mm-hmm. who has called America's healthcare industry a tapeworm in the American economy. And I think that is a brilliant way to describe it. It just sucks money out of people. And of course, I was thinking about this as I re- studied. Th- that money is going to people, right? It is paying someone's salary, but it's... R- it's so often not paying productive salaries right. in an industry it's non-value added salaries. Yeah, in an industry where where people where there should be so much research and development happening, so much of the money that's in it is is kind of going to waste. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I was going to start with how is our healthcare like quality wise? Yeah, what does it look like? It's bad. Yeah, it's incredibly bad. It we're we have like the worst outcomes versus all com- comparable rich OECD countries. Yes, I want to give you some context here for the national healthcare systems among high income countries compared through the Commonwealth Fund compared to eleven high income countries. We came eleventh. Yeah, we have the lowest life expectancy. We have the highest infant mortality rate. We have the highest neonatal mortality rate. We have the highest maternal mortality rate. Um, it's. It's pretty striking and pretty obvious that our outcomes are the worst. What's so depressing is our outcomes are the worst, but we spend overwhelmingly the most. Yeah. 
Like we are currently spending how much for GDP? 16.8%, 17%, something I, like that? It was over 17% in 2022. There we go. Yeah, my data is from 2019. So it's 22%, what'd you say? Over 17%. Over 17%. Yeah. The next one, the, the closest to us is Switzerland at 11. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's crazy. We spend um, between nine and $10,000 per capita on on. Uh, our healthcare second most is about is between six and seven thousand. Uh, we spend a crazy amount, and on top of that, we have eight point three percent of our population uninsured, compared to zero percent uninsured in Japan, zero percent uninsured in the United Kingdom, less than one percent uninsured in France, less than one percent uninsured in Germany, less than five percent uninsured in China. We're getting beat out in healthcare by China. China is not okay, China has the number two GDP in the world because they are an enormous population, but they're not a rich country. No. Their GDP per capita is like a quarter of ours. This is absurd. This and is a huge huge l that we're taking and it should make everyone angry you should be demanding more yeah we are a better country than this yes and we don't have we, we're not fighting to make it better our elected officials aren't fighting to make it better no this this combination of stats should be remarkably embarrassing we should we i <laughs> the countries other countries should laugh at us yes Honestly, other countries should invade us, change our government, and give us free healthcare. That's what they should do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and it's just—it's it, one of those things where this should be a national outrage, and Americans are just complete. I also—I don't think Americans think that anything can be any different. Like this is just the way it is, mm -hmm. you know. And they just think like there's no way it's ever going to get better. Yeah. But where does America's system suck? One of the ways American system sucks so bad is our administrative efficiency. Mm -hmm. So because these other countries have universal systems, a lot of them have single-payer systems. Some of them are multi-payer systems. Some of them are totally government-run systems. But what all of those have in common between them is they have very standard payment processes. Mm -hmm. Well, in the United States, the documentation, the paperwork, the bureaucratic tasks for each patient all change based off the type of insurance that that person has. Yes. So U.S. doctors are the most likely to have trouble getting their patients medication or treatments because of restrictions of insurance coverage. Um, compared to most other countries, large percentage of U.S. adults in the United States say they spend a lot of time on paperwork related to medical bills. Medical bills don't exist in a lot of parts of the world, guys. Mm -hmm. We're one of the only countries in the in developed world that has medical bills. Yep. Get angry. Well, this is, yeah, this is the result when you have the standardization that a single payer plan produces, or even in these multi-payer systems where there's, where they are not so blinded by the need for free markets and capitalism that they're allowed to impose some regulation mm -hmm. on how billing is done, on how the insurance is administered. Mm -hmm. It totally reduces costs. Like so much. Amazing. I mean, and we'll, we'll get into that. How much that actually reduces costs. Yeah. But on top, and so in addition to this, this is the last point I have on the administration stuff. The United States and Canada are the least likely, um, specifically the United States. Canada is a very, 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 very distant part from the United States. But the United States are the most likely to visit an emergency department when they don't need to visit the emergency department. Mm. They need a primary care doctor. Yeah. 
So America has a massive primary care shortage, which we'll get into, but they're the most likely to go into emergency centers, which are the least efficient way of seeing a regular doctor. And I would one thing I would say here is one of the reasons our emergency rooms are often so filled up is because we have such a terrible homelessness problem. Mm-hmm. Homeless people are the majority of stays that occur in emergency rooms. And so that there there are multiple ways in which other systemic issues that we have in our country feed into this massive healthcare burden. Yep. Um, and that's one of them. So we're not really going to get into that today because that's a little bit too much. Yeah, for this it's too much. Yeah, maybe we'll do homelessness at another time. Yeah. Because that's a good that. topic. But it's it's so interesting because you mention like the people using emergency rooms too much. Generally, there's been an idea that there's overutilization in our healthcare system, um, and so I don't want to skew. I don't want to stray too far from administration here. No, but, it's okay. But there's been a general consensus for a long time that we're we're wasting a lot of of money on healthcare um, and over treating people because we have this fee for service model. Right. And I'll I'll argue later that that's really not the main issue, mm-hmm. but because that's the the consensus, we. We, it gives rise to utilization management activities mm. like prior authorization for treatment or it oh. encourages insurance designs that charge more out of pocket to discourage people. And what does that do? Causes more administration. It, it needs more administration work to handle. Yes. Right. So that's been building it up. Um so I, I want to talk about how people are saying that we're over utilizing our healthcare in the United States. We are so under utilizing what we should be doing. And the Commonwealth Fund found this. In the United Kingdom, 12% of low-income people have said that they skipped a doctor visit due to costs. Mm. In the United Kingdom, 12% low-income people. Sweden, 19% of low-income people. In the United States, half of low-income people said they skipped a doctor visit in the last year due to costs. And this is a very unique problem. The only country, the next closest country, is New Zealand at 27%. The United States is double that at 50. Yeah. We... Our health, I mean, it's it's a perfect microcosm of a general issue where our our system is so focused on treatment rather than prevention, mm-hmm. um, which again makes sense because of the capitalism that is baked in, right? Because they everyone can all of these health providers can afford to charge more mm-hmm. for the for the treatment rather than the prevention. Because people people will skip the preventative um, office visits, right? And but they won't decline the treatment for the potentially life threatening problems. No, of course not. Of course not. Like, what's the price? What's the price you're going to pay to cure yourself from cancer? Anything. Exactly. You'll give your leg, right? You'll mm-hmm. do anything for it. And people are all the time. Exactly. Yeah. They're going into medical debt. Medical bankruptcy is the number one cause of bankruptcy in the United States. Yeah. Which isn't a thing in the developed world. Medical bankruptcies do not exist in the developed world. It doesn't happen. Yeah. It's just it's just sad. It is sad. Honestly. It's the worst. And the, I, yeah. The one other thing I wanted to mention on the on the administration front is electronic health record systems. Oh yeah. So this is important because there are a number. So there are three like there are three biggest players, but there are a number of other players in this space uh, that that track medical records, um, and they all work where 
there's no communication that can happen between them because they want to lock their clients in to only using those systems. And what that means is when you do want to transfer medical records and you maybe have to transfer them to a different system, again, so much more paperwork, so much more administration. This is a place where these other countries have regulated that all of these electronic health record systems, EHR systems, can talk to each other easily. So you don't have to worry about all that. Yep. Um, and again, it is, this is, I'm just going to keep hammering this home. It is our government's reluctance mm-hmm. to play any kind of part in this market has allowed this to happen, and it was, which is burdening the consumer enormously. Right. This is all a choice we're making. Yeah. This is all a choice we're making. Totally. And that's what, I, that's what I definitely want to hammer home is all of these things are choices. I'm going to read off another stat here mm-hmm. where it talks about um, uh, preventable mortality deaths per 100,000 people. Mm. In the United Kingdom, in the United Kingdom? Yeah, in the United Kingdom, it's 93 deaths per 100,000 that are preventable. In the United States, it's basically double that at 177. We are unique with this problem. The next closest to us is 119 per 100,000. That's Switzerland. Yeah. We are uniquely bad. I want to talk about our progress with this. So when we look at avoidable deaths and 10-year reduction in avoidable mortality across countries, since 2009... Switzerland has seen a 25% reduction in avoidable mortality. In Norway, you've seen a 24% reduction in avoidable mortality. In the UK, we've seen a 19% reduction in avoidable mortality. In the US, we've seen a 5% reduction. We're not making progress the same way the rest of the world is, and that's why our life expectancy is going down. Yeah. I'm curious where you would break this down. Mm-hmm. To me, it's it's mo- like it's one People are discouraged from going to the doctor because it can bankrupt them. But this is another place where I feel like the the other societal issues come in. Our fentanyl problem, Mm -hmm. right, is a huge contributor to this. Diseases of despair is something we learned about in Stiglitz, right, and how they're higher in the U.S. than anywhere else in the developed world. Equivalent to 1990s Russia. Yeah, yeah. And I, I I think that's a huge contributing factor here. Oh, totally. Yeah. That is definitely where a lot of the excess mortality is coming from. It's coming from suicide. Yeah. It's coming from drug overdose. But it's also, it's it's a positive feedback loop in a very negative area where not providing these people health care is what's leading them into the despair, right? Feeling mm-hmm. like they can't go get help without being bankrupted. What more despairing situation can you find yourself right, in? Where are you going to turn to when the whole country is like, yeah, if you try to get help, we're going to take your house from you. Yeah. It's absolutely ridiculous. There's no incentive for people to get better, and it leads to death. Yeah, so, um, it's just so sad. So I, I was, I was going to talk about where, like, what, what are the underlying causes of these costs being so high? Because mm-hmm. I think that's that's where I kind of landed as one of the root issues here. Okay. Um, and I, I mentioned before, there's this conventional thinking that a fee for service model has encouraged uh, healthcare providers to overtreat, right? Because the more services they give, the more they're paid by the insurance companies. But there was some data released comparing OECD countries in 2018 that challenged this and kind of rejected it, in my opinion, because it showed that American utilization is actually pretty similar wow. to every other country, um, except for imaging, which actually is a pretty, which which is one part of this 
that supports that wasteful treatment hypothesis, we give we do many more imaging, uh, like more CT MRI scans, stuff. MRIs on people, and we charge a ton for them. Um, but there's there's other kind of disconnected uh, but important cost drivers. So first of all, hospital costs account for 31% of health spending that we do in this country, by far the biggest factor. They charge a ton for their procedures and tests like MRIs. And the reason that these costs balloon up so much is because of consolidation that's been happening in our hospitals. Another thing, apparently Stiglitz is really kind of my guy for this kind of thing that's happening. But he, we read about how many industries were kind of getting closer to oligopoly Mm -hmm. and monopoly. Well, this is even worse in the hospital space because hospitals aren't national industries. They're local industries. You don't want to go, honestly, you don't want to go 10 miles to go to a hospital. You want to go to the closest. Exactly. Much less 20 or 30 or 40 and 50. And so the thing is, in these rural areas, which the United States has a lot of as a very large country, there are very few hospitals and people do have to travel farther. And so companies, massive kind of hospital conglomerates, have seen those as opportunities to become monopolies. Mm -hmm. So... Appalachia is a great example where um, I'm forgetting the name of it, but one of these companies bought up uh, every hospital kind of within a hundred mile radius of one spot. And as soon as they were able to do that, just as a monopoly works, it was able to jack up their prices. And so how does, how does this payment exactly work? Insurers negotiate on prices of services with the healthcare providers, right? So if insurers want to cover a certain area that's been monopolized, um, they can only negotiate with one Mm -hmm. hospital group, right? And so once that's the case, it's like, okay, you can either not cover this entire area or you can pay whatever prices we ask of you. And of course, the prices that the insurers pay get passed down to people in co-pays and in the premiums they pay. Um, studies found that 75% of markets, of hospital markets, are now considered highly consolidated. Wow. Biden's administration, their FTC, has blocked seven mergers in the last two years. They've been on this. They've been trying to stop it, but there were still 53 acquisitions in 2022. Oh, my God. It's a very hard problem to stop. And it creates a positive feedback loop because comparatively independent doctors have very little bargaining power with insurance companies Mm -hmm. right and so they are incentivized to join these hospital groups which also give them more regular hours less administrative hassle um right it's an economies of scale beneficent it's you're benefiting from the economies of scale by joining this exactly exactly um price opacity has also been talked about as a contributor to the problem. Right. You can't see the prices of the things that you're trying to do. Yeah. A lot of times people, yeah, people go and they're like, I have to get treated. It's it's a medical test. Um, but honestly, this has also been kind of debunked. Yeah. Like, what are you going to do? They, they're like, I'm going to drive 30 miles longer to save $200. Yeah. People just do what their doctors tell them Yeah, is the thing. Uh, and the crazy thing is, and I was listening to a podcast on this because of this consolidation, this monopolization, there are some hardcore economists that want price regulations 
on what these hospitals can charge. And price regulation is like the dirtiest word an economist could ever hear. Yeah. I it, mean, I love it. <laughs> I love it too. Yeah. So yeah, this that to me is kind of the main, the probably the most core reason. Uh, and then everything else comes down to, not everything else, but administration is another big part. And there are other things that a universal healthcare system would help massively with. Well, one thing I focused in on... Mm was the lack of doctors in the United States. Me too. And that's a huge burden mm. because it makes doctors, I'm glad doctors make a lot of money, but they make so much money yeah. as compared to everyone else in our society because the United States are is very unique in how little we have of doctors, specifically primary care physicians. Yeah. So in comparing these countries through the Commonwealth Group, um, we have the United States, as last, as the number, you know, out of those 11 countries, we are the worst. Mm-hmm. Norway is the best among the 11 countries. Um, they have a lot more supply of physicians per their population. Mm-hmm. And here are the numbers. The United States is down at 2,000. Uh, what is it? Oh, no. The United States is down at 2.5 doctors per 10,000 people. Denmark is up at 23 doctors per 10,000 people. Norway is at 27 doctors per 10,000 people. All right, that's a little ridiculous. The the Nordic countries are always great for everything. Let's go to the United Kingdom where their country kind of sucks. United Kingdom, seven physicians per each. Yeah. So we are absolutely failing. And the United States, but the United States is actually unique in having like a larger proportion of specialty doctors versus primary care doctors. And the reason for this is doctors go, people who want to become doctors have to do four years of undergraduate school. Then they have to do four years of med school. Then they have to do four years of residency or however long med school is. I don't know. Two years, I don't know. Three to seven. Three to seven. Okay. So there's so much. And then the average person in the United States comes out with two hundred dollars to $300,000 in student loans. Yep. So they have to make a lot of money. Yeah. So they push, they get pushed into specialty groups and specialty programs where they can make three hundred fifty, four hundred thousand dollars a year instead of primary care slash pediatric care where you make two hundred grand. Yeah, I, I have some numbers here on specifically how different salaries are. Oh, good. Um, so for generalists in the U.S., it's two hundred eighteen thousand um, dollars. That's nearly double the mean of these other OECD countries. Yep. Norway's at 110. Second place is Germany at 154,000. Oh my. So we're 42% higher than second place. Specialists, $316,000 is our average versus 202,000 in Australia. We're over 50% more. And we even have to pay our nurses more than everywhere else. We're 14%, we pay nurses 14% more than second place Australia. I, so I went pretty deep on this too. Good. And I have a lot to say. I, Lowering doctor salaries could be part of the solution. But what I found is that doctors' remunerations are estimated to account for less than 10% of total health spending. What is what is remunerate? What is that word? Salaries. Okay. Yeah. What doctors are paying. Yeah, I knew what it meant. I just didn't of know course. if the We're audience would. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so, yes, it could be a problem. I, I did go deep into this doctor shortage because well, I, 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 well, I'm talking about – I'm not saying that the doctor salaries are a problem. But why are the salaries so high and then that's the problem? 
Okay, because you because the shortage? Because the doctor shortage. Okay, you think the shortage is the problem? I think the shortage is the problem. So did you go into why there's a shortage? Cause yes. I, yeah. About the number of MDs that have been given out? Well, you go first. I'll give mine after. Because mine, mine is residencies. Okay. Is the is the bottleneck here? Okay. Uh, oh yes. Yeah. So what I found is that there are about 0.8 residencies available for every medical student that graduates med school, and so that might not seem like that big of a difference, considering like the acceptance rates that people hear about going to college, going to grad school, going to med school, but it's already such a tiny thin funnel to get people into med school to not be able to train all of those people to be doctors is an enormous problem Mm -hmm. and it and that is what's stopping like the residency spots need to expand not just to 100 of med students that are graduating but to more than that so that the med schools can accept more students absolutely absolutely and then that bottleneck it's 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 devastating could you imagine doing all that money to go to med school and then not getting into a residency program? It's absolutely absurd. To pay that amount of money and not get into residency is crippling. Unbelievable. Yeah. So now there's another aspect to this. The, now, the amount of doctors who join the workforce every year. How many MDs are given out every year? Well, in 1980, this is the... the I, sorry, I, I don't want to bulldoze you, but I, I want to talk. I have more about the residencies. Oh, then go it about the residencies. would probably make more sense. You know. Um, okay, so... So there are not enough residencies. I just want to go into why is this the case, Mm -hmm. right? People know that this is a problem. So residency spots are funded by the Medicare program. Um, And there's a a portion of it that it it spends about $15 billion a year on residency spots in the country. Here's the thing, though. That was set in a 1997 piece of legislation called the Balanced Budget Act. (gasps) No. That number, that cap was always expected to be raised. It never was. Oh, it's, my God. We've been funding the same amount of spots with the sole exception of a modest increase of funding from one of the 2020 COVID bills. Wow. Okay, It created spots for 1,000 new residencies. It's not nearly enough. Right now, 70% of hospitals train more residents than Medicare funds for. So it's getting funding from other places, but the Medicare funding is still the vast majority of what they have. Um, but... The problem is more complex than this. It's not only the lack of funding. There's a lack of teachers. So they're called preceptors in this case, the doctors who are actually going to teach the residents. Um, oh, this is so messed up in so many ways. So, <laughs> so there's a lack of supply of training sites, which is partially due to that consolidation I was just talking about earlier, right? Doctors are being given more work because they're in hospitals that are maximizing their hours. And oftentimes they're given billing targets once they are working for an organization, which means that they have to spend all of their time treating patients and they can't even sign up to try to be a teacher. Um, Furthermore, there are many more non-medical students that seek these spots and get these spots. They apply to them, including nursing students and physical or physician assistant students, PA students. So we have these, these problems of we need more funding and we need more preceptors. Meanwhile, doctors face the highest rates of burnout ever. There was a survey in 2021 that uh, that about 21% of the doctors who were asked questions in the surveys expected that they were going to leave the field in the next two years. That's exactly. Guess what? what? It's been two years. Yep. Um, so it, it's like a really bad problem. What are the solutions? Schools are mulling over paying 
preceptors. Uh, but which again, that cost is almost certainly going to fall on medical students, right? Right, and tuitions. And those tuitions, those tuitions that are going to be paid for with student loans that are not defaultable, not bankruptable. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They're looking. They're looking further away to send students off to training centers 40, 50 miles away, mm-hmm. um, which just makes life more hellish for medical mm-hmm. students that are always already working. De-incentivizing horrific. the wanting to be a doctor. Yep, ours. Um, the one that I really like that's already been started in a few states is offering tax credits to preceptors, mm. up to like $1,000 of tax credits per student that that's great. you that you teach. Um, this has already begun in Maryland, Hawaii, Ohio, Georgia. So that is um a direction that i hope more states go sorry that i no 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 i love all that time but yeah no that's so important i did not know that the preceptors were such an issue at all um i had no idea i had to to get and i am shocked that that 15 billion dollar number for residency funding has not really been raised since 1997 no that's unreally that's unreal it's crazy i mean it's just and then that makes perfect sense as to why this is happening so I, I took a little bit of a deep dive into where um, doctor, how many doctors are joining the workforce every year. Mm. So in 1980 is our base year, okay? After 1980, um, there, was a, there was a feeling in the medical community. There was that a report. There was too many doctors. Yeah. And in response to this, we capped the number of MDs that were being given out um, over the course um, of like 1980 to 2005. We capped it. Okay. And because of this, we saw the population of the United States keep going, keep going up. Mm-hmm. But the number of doctors that graduated every year at 1980 just flatlined. And we hovered around 80% growth for doctors. But, you know, still continual 100% growth to the population. So we're seeing a 20% gap open Mm -hmm. up every year. When the moratorium ended in 2005, we started seeing that increase again. And eventually it will catch up. It looks like it's catching up. But there was a huge gap created over these last 25 years caused by bad government policy. And also 1980, who was president then? Ronald Reagan. I'm sorry, Mr. Free Market Guy. Why are you limiting the number of doctors that we're able to make? I don't understand what's happening. Okay, so this is a point where I want to bring in a little bit of older history. um, Because we have a long history of thinking that we need to limit the number of doctors in this country. Really? In 1910. No shit. A document came out. A guy named Abraham Flexner. (laughs) What a bitch. Came out with a report which specifically advocated for having fewer medical schools and thus fewer doctors. So this came from a few places. He thought that quality wasn't consistent enough across the spectrum. And everyone, most most people who are post-college will know that Johns Hopkins is like the best medical school and undergrad medical programs in the world. It came from this. Flexner used Johns Hopkins as his gold standard in the report. And so this was enormously influential, not only in tightening uh, tightening standards for medical schools, um, but in encouraging them to be to admit fewer applicants. And it set the standard for our entire medical school 
residency system. Wow. So listen, it is only the U.S. and Canada that has this whole four years undergrad, four years medical school, three to seven years residency. What happens in other countries is they six do years. five to six years undergrad, and that undergrad study is their medical school study, and then they become doctors. And Flexner was like, we need to be more stringent. And this program is doing so much damage as far as discouraging people from entering the workforce and um, and just removing potential doctors, even who do reach the end of certain points, who, who finish undergrad, who decide not to go to medical school, who finish medical school but don't have residency, residency spots available for them. Yep. Um, and it's, it's wild that our system, since our system grew around that report now, we're so ingrained in it. We're stuck in it. That like trying to transition out of the med school residency system w- seems impossible. It seems like a daunting task. I don't even like. I can't even fathom how you would do that. No, it's almost like it, it's so difficult to imagine the world that you're a, a world different from what you're currently living in, right? Yeah. It's like easier. It's easier. This is a famous quote. It's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism, right? <laughs> yeah. And that's how I feel about that. I agree. Um, it's easier to imagine a world with no doctors than ones that don't go to undergrad and then medical school. Yeah. But that's it, how the rest of the world operates. And I think one of the things the United States should do as a prescriptive thing, I think the United States should allow doctors from Canada to come to the United States and practice. Mm. I think the United States should allow doctors from other European countries, Norway, Denmark, UK, France, to come to the United States and practice here. And we should try importing their doctors because as much as we need reform here, we have a bubble of open spots built from that 1980 moratorium yeah. on MDs that we need to fill right now because we're going into this retirement age of the baby boomers yeah. and we need to pump people in to fill that hole right now. I definitely agree with you um, on principle, but because we have such a messed up administration system, mm. I honestly don't know if it's, if we could attract them. Like, yeah. These doctors have to do so much work that they weren't trained for and that they don't like. No, that makes a lot of sense. And that makes a lot of sense. I mean, the United States is the only country among comparative countries that employs health navigators. Yeah. And these health navigators help people get around their insurance. So you don't only have to pay for your insurance. You have to pay for somebody to help you use your insurance. Oh, United States is the only one that has that. It's ridiculous. I I have one more thing I want to talk about on on the price issue, Mm -hmm. which is pharmaceuticals, which is like the biggest political issue that I think comes out of this. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, like everything else, we spend, we have the highest pharmaceutical spending per capita of by course far. We do. Um, Why fi- wouldn't we? 54% more than second place Switzerland. Uh, <laughs> for three common pharmaceuticals, the US price is more than double the next highest country. Uh, this is something that the Biden administration has made progress on because they had an, made an update to Medicare Part D, which is the part, the provision of Medicare, which um, provides for pharmaceuticals um, that the government is allowed to negotiate on pharmaceutical prices. Thank God. Which it hadn't been able to do before. And so this is going to be big, not just for people with Medicare, but for bringing down prices across the board. Yeah, this is going to be huge. They were looking to get it also um, apply to the private sector. That ended up not going through. Um, they tried to get um, uh, an insulin price cap of $35 in private and public health care. They only got it in public, not all the way in private. Some private suppliers of 
insulin has come down to 35 in response to the negative public backlash Mm -hmm. from the administration, which is really great to see. Um, But they didn't get that done from a policy perspective yet. Um, But yeah. But I mean, to me, that perfectly translates into what I think the last part of this conversation should be. I want to do one more thing. Okay. On the on, I want to do one more thing on comparing us to the rest of the world. Yeah, yeah. I I, I read a lot about Norwegian healthcare. Yes. I because Norwegian had the best. Norway has the best one in the world. They have the most amount of doctors per person. Um, they have a very very great way of funneling and creating doctors. And I want to just talk about how Norway works. So maybe we can learn something. Yeah. So, in Norway. There is universal coverage, and it's funded through general taxes, payroll contributions, okay? Patients make co-payments for some services and products with caps on out-of-pocket expenses. The way that it's organized is, I think, a great blueprint for how America could organize a similar system. Municipalities organize primary health care, while national governments is responsible for taking care of hospital services, um, sometimes through state-owned, mostly through state-owned regional health authorities. I don't think state-owned authorities will work in the United States. I don't think we have the political appetite for that. I wish we did, but we don't. But municipalities organizing primary health care, I think that is key to what the United States could take from this. Mm. 10% of the population in Norway does have private insurance. And the reason they do is to have quicker access and greater choice to some private provider. So they, there is a multi-payer thing going on here. Public option. The public option, exactly. They began the system. This is what's really so crazy to me. The system actually began in 1909. Their national health care system began in 1909. And this was for poor workers and their families. Um, but other citizens were allowed, to, uh, were allowed to opt out. In 1956 converted into a fully universal and mandatory right for all citizens, mm-hmm. not just for the poor, but for everybody. Um, and now what does it cover? It covers primary and ambulatory care, hospital care, mental health care, rehabilitation, outpatient prescription drugs, um, if the drug is in the national formula, um, preventative services, maternity care, um, maternity care and uh, uh, maternity care from a midwife at a clinic, home-based care and uh, I don't, uh, a word I don't know what that means, medical equipment on a needs basis and dental care. Medicare in the United States for age, people ages 65 and up currently doesn't, dental, doesn't cover dental care. Norway covers dental care for everybody and they have a GDP, that's less, GDP per capita that's less than ours. And I'd be very confident in saying that the, the caps on copays in Norway are much lower <laughs> than what people pay for copays for Medicare. You'd be right. Um, where do the doctors come from? Medical education programs are offered through, poor, through four public universities. Um, the yearly educational capacity is 600 students, and the tuition fee is about $118. $118 a year to go to medical school in Norway. In the United States, what is it, 90 grand? Yeah. Why are we doing this? Why have we made this decision? Registered residents have the right to go to a general practitioner of their choosing, assuming the physician has capacity, blah, blah, blah. The average patient per practitioner or the average panel size is 1,120 in Norway. In the United States, it's 2,500, more than double, okay? So, and this is what I like so much about the municipality system. 
municipalities contract individual primary care doctors. Mm. And those primary care doctors are mostly self-employed. Only 6% are salaried municipal employees. They're not Mm state-owned. They're reimbursed by the state. Yeah. But they're not state employees. Okay, so this is... This is where I, the cost savings from a universal system come in. Massive. Okay, because it creates, it's a word we've used occasionally on this podcast before, monopsony power. To have a single buyer means we have kind of, rather than these massive hospital systems having all the bargaining power, our government has all the bargaining power because they're the only insurer. So they get to be like, no, we don't want to pay $2,000 for every CT scan you do. We know that only costs you $150. So we'll pay you we'll pay you 200. We'll right. give we'll throw you a bone. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And Norway is able to really benefit because of that monopsony power. Mm-hmm. And the last thing I'll say about Norway, long-term care costs, uh long-term care facilities. Mm. 90% of of nursing homes are funded by municipalities. Only ten percent are private co- private nursing homes, but even those are nonprofit. Yeah. When I when I hear all this, I just think of how much safer, how much more supported would you feel in a country where the baseline is there's always someone ready and waiting to take care of me, yep. versus if I try to get someone to take care of me i could lose everything i have everything again health and health medical bills are the number one cause of bankruptcy in the united states it's it's just night and day and it it it, it is sad like it's sad to think about um that burden for people to to have no i mean i i when my mom was growing up you know when my mom was growing up she broke her nose and she didn't they weren't able to go to the hospital because they didn't have health insurance. Mm. So my mom lived with the broken nose and just waited for it to heal on her own. They like made, they like got a splint from, you know, one of their friends and they made like a homemade one. It's like, that's not the world we should be living in. No. That was in the sixties, right? But Norway had a universal health care by 1956. <laughs> and I get yeah. it guys. Norway's a smaller country, but, but, but whatever with that. Well, so, so you can apply it to scale. Let's get into why. Yeah. Why not? Yeah, why right. not? Um, so it was floated in like the 40s, 50s. Uh, and it was actually, I found an article that talked about how it was initially proposed by the National Medical Association, mm-hmm. which arose out of the Freedmen's Bureau. Um, because And we've talked about that in the past. Yes, so. yes, which was formed uh, out of, from, from the slaves being emancipated after the American Civil War. In the South, after the Civil War, there were diseases that rampantly ran through black populations, including smallpox. And so the it was kind of unsurprisingly mistreated or not paid enough attention to by the majority white establishments. Shock. Uh, but the, Met- the National Medical Association was formed by black doctors. Uh, and they proposed later on universal health care. But because racism was so powerful at the time, that was one of the major reasons it was shot down. It was also just post-World War II 
and it was called out a socialist, a critique we still see constantly today to call out any big government program. Um, and so that's kind of why we still don't have it. Mm -hmm. But the other reason, I would say, it is the cost. Yeah, the cost. Estimates for the cost range from $24 trillion to $36 trillion over 10 years, um, which is a lot. Mm -hmm. Universal health care has actually been tried before in the United States, in Vermont. Yes, it has. It was tried in 2011, and they actually never figured out a way to fund it. The proposed tax plans that they would have had to implement to fund it were decided. It was decided that they were too high and would potentially cause economic shocks, mm -hmm. and so it never actually happened. Now in Vermont, they still, they still are campaigning to have universal health care to bring it back. A lot of the citizens are disappointed, um, but I guess the more pragmatic politicians decided that it wouldn't be possible. Well, I'll tell you this. To make this happen in America, it has to be national. Can't be done on a statewide basis. Mm. Can't happen. The, we need the power of the federal government fully behind this if we're going to make it work. And we need to, because uh, we, we need payroll taxes to make this work. We need larger progressive taxes on the wealthy to make this work. We're going to need enormous progressive taxes. I want to make that very clear. Yeah. We would need... This twenty four point seven trillion, if you or thirty six trillion, if you say thirty trillion is kind of the the midpoint of these estimates, mm -hmm. that's three trillion a year. That's that's about sixty percent more than all of the taxes we brought in last year. Yep. So we we need a lot more taxes. Where do we get that money from? I think it's a simple answer. The average typical family of four with an employer sponsored health insurance plan spend about twenty eight thousand dollars a year between the employer premium and then their contribution. The employer spent 56% of that, the employee spent 27% of that, and then the out-of-pocket expenses was at around 17%. $28,000 in total. That's all going to the private insurance company. The United States government needs to take that $28,000, take about 24,000 of it, leave you with a profit of four grand, yeah. and take that $24,000 and fund a national healthcare system. That means middle class taxes going up. Yeah. That means working class taxes going up. But it's all going to be worth it when you do your taxes at the end of the year and you realize, oh my God, I have more money in my pocket because I have no copays, I have no deductibles, mm -hmm. I have no more health insurance premiums. At the end of the day, you will be in the green guaranteed. And not only will you be in the green, the nation as a whole will most likely be in the green. Yeah. The Congressional Budget Office did a report in 2020, and they said the various specifications for national health expenditures ranged from a $0.7 trillion decrease to a $0.3 trillion increase by 2030 if Medicare for All was passed. That's suggesting that we could have and it's more likely we decrease our national health expenditures by passing Medicare for all than not. Yeah. We would be saving money, most likely. Yeah, I found a study that said $450 billion a year. Beautiful. Probably. We, I think it's almost almost certain that we save money. Again, yeah. these administrative costs yep. are going to plummet. Plummet. Plummet if we have a uniform system. Uh, my, and I think you explained it perfectly there. It is the challenge of progressives to continue articulating it that eloquently 
over and over again. That is the battle that we are going to have to have, and we need to win. Yes. There are too many people who are suffering and who have been suffering for too long for progressives not to win this fight, or for gutless politicians to not be able to go to the stage and say, yes, middle class people, your taxes will go up, but you're going to be happy they are because we're going to give you the best health care in the world because Americans can and should have the best health care in the world. 